Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. We're your host. I'm Gerhard Steuben. And I'm Tyler Stanley. And this is a super cool special mini episode uh, that you've probably already been listening to, so no more introduction. It's Augustine City of God. Part four. Part, oh, sweet. For this part, we are reading through books 7 and 8 of City of God, and he, Augustine starts off book 7 talking about Varro's natural theology. In the previous books, he was talking about the three types of theology that Varro discusses, which are mythical, civil, and natural. Remember that mythical is like the plays that, you, that the Greeks and Romans would put on to show the lives of the gods. The civil is the actual rituals that worshippers would perform in the temples. And then natural here just basically means philosophy. So here Augustine really gets into the philosophical argument for this polytheistic culture and then obviously his rebuttal to that. So he starts off addressing Varro's idea that there are select gods that are superior to all the others. And Augustine asks why these specific gods are select. But he has this really fun little quip and a jab at the uh, early church father Tertullian that I think is worth reading because it's funny. He says, uh, on this, I'm not going to echo what Tertullian said, perhaps with more wit than truth. Quote, if gods are selected like onions, then the others are rejected as worthless, end quote. Having more wit than truth, as Gerhard put it, is the most apt description of Tertullian, because he's all about the wit. No truth. No truth. <laughs> Just kidding, he's got truth. Sometimes. Yes. So, Augustine is saying there, no, 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 just because some are select doesn't mean that they're all terrible or worthless, but we should address this issue head on. So Augustine asks the question of why these gods are select. He says, is it because they are, that their function is higher, that they have greater authority over the universe? And that doesn't seem to be the case. So Augustine goes through a few examples of some gods that are select having lower functions than some gods that are not select. So for example, Juno is said to have the responsibility of guiding people. She can guide, uh, guide you home or guide you on your path. That's one of her functions. But he says the god mens, which means mind in Latin, that god is not select. But in order to get somewhere on your path or on your way, in order to uh, have the intelligence to get where you're going, don't you need to have the mind in the first place? So shouldn't the god Mens be more important than the god Juno? So it doesn't look like these select gods are selected because they are more important. It seems that they're just selected because they're more known to the general public. And Augustine makes that point, I think, pretty, pretty firm. He goes through, as you noticed, many, many examples, because that's what Augustine does. He is thorough. Yeah. Uh, and so if Augustine says that pagan gods have been arbitrarily, pretty much arbitrarily selected between like, this god is super important and this god isn't as important. 
he also goes within the select gods themselves and says, not only is it arbitrary that they were singled out, um, it's also arbitrary in the way that we say that, uh, say, like, Zeus is either one god or two gods. Um, what he's basically trying to argue there, and maybe a little background might be helpful, so Augustine points out that in pagan philosophical theology, these gods each are assigned a task, but it's kind of arbitrary to decide when one task begins and when another task ends, uh, when you need two gods for maybe a joint task, or when you can only you can get by with only one. And so Augustine points out that the gods Janus and Jupiter, or Zeus, are considered two different gods um, because one of them is concerned with beginnings and one is concerned with causes. Janus is the god of beginnings. That's why we have January as a year, because it's the beginning of the year. Uh, Zeus, or Jupiter, um, is more associated with the causes of things. But Augustine asks, what's exactly the difference between a beginning and a cause? Because a cause is the beginning of another thing, and every beginning is implicitly a cause of a future thing. So Augustine says, why do we have two gods here when in fact it's kind of the same task? And then he brings up as a clincher for his argument, but you pagans say there's only one god who both supports the earth and helps animals breastfeed. And beginnings and causes are much more similar than supporting the earth and breastfeeding. So why did you arbitrarily say there's two gods in the case of Janus and Jupiter and uh, only one god who does more varied tasks in the case of the other? And so that's just one of the many examples he uses. And But in sum, to build on the argument Tyler just explained, Augustine also points out that the tasks assigned to them are arbitrary. It's, it, it's kind of like saying... Tyler's example earlier, because I'm a podcaster and an author, that doesn't make me two people. Um, and Augustine's accusing pagan theology of falling into that sort of contradiction. The third and last point that we will talk about with book seven is that Varro seems to have this idea that there is, in fact, only one God. Augustine brings up the line of a poet who also has this idea Page 267 in our edition, he says, from the poet Valerius Soranus, Almighty Jupiter, sovereign of all things and of all the gods, father and mother of the gods, himself the only god, and in himself all gods. So, Varro agrees with this concept that all of the gods are in fact only one true god, which he calls the world soul. It's the soul of the world. So everything in creation is wrapped up within this soul. So Augustine admits that Varro and these other philosophers and a few poets toy with monotheism. But ultimately, they're inconsistent and they fail in this attempt um, because they have conflicting notions of what it means to be uh, to have this one true God, because they say there is the world's soul, and then all of the other gods are actually bits and pieces of that God. They are pieces of the, the world itself. So you have 
like we talked about, Jupiter is the sky and the Earth itself, which receives the sky. But also, Jupiter is that star way out there in the sky. But also, Jupiter is the world soul, which is the all-consuming god. So which is it? Is Jupiter a thing that you can point to out in the sky? Is Jupiter the thing you're standing on right now? Is Jupiter the world soul? This is just inconsistent and incoherent, Augustine says. And so in book seven, um, Augustine took on Varro, who is one type of pagan uh, philosophical theologian. In book eight, he takes on a much more familiar uh, pagan philosophical theologian or school of pagan philosophical theologians. Um, These are philosophers that if you took philosophy 101, you might recognize. And so at the beginning of book eight, Augustine talks about how the pre-Socratic philosophers in Greek slowly grasped towards monotheism in their theologies. He gives a very quick list of pre-Socratic philosophers. He says, the first one believed that water was the ultimate unifying principle in the world, but that water doesn't have like a mind, right? Just it's the ultimate fundamental basis of all things but it has no divine intelligence. And then Augustine says, and then we moved from there. And another guy, Thales was the one who said water. Uh, The second guy, Anaximander, says, no, 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 it's not water. It's, uh, there are innumerable, like, first principles um, that give cause to life. And so it's, it's kind of like what we think of today as atoms, like their fundaments that are the cause of everything. This also does not have a divine, divine mind. So Augustine points out we're still not quite at monotheism yet. Next guy, guy named Anaximenes. He believed that uh, the fundamental cause was not water or atoms, but air. And air does have mind. And so the air itself is the monotheistic principle of the world, and it guides all things. And Augustine says that's one step closer And then he says, there's another guy, Anaxagoras, who kind of reverted to the previous principle and said, there is divine mind, but it's in all the atoms of the world, basically. And then Augustine says, this all led to a point, which is Socrates, the student of that last guy, whose name was Archelaus. Socrates was better than all the pre-Socratics because he said, hold on, guys, you're talking about divine things, but you're all kind of still not great people. Before you talk about nature, theology, you have to purify yourself. And so Socrates said, the ethical comes before philosophy of this more speculative sort. And so Socrates' whole system, as you might be aware, is a way of purifying the soul from what he thought of as corruption, and we might say sin, and that his student Plato took Socrates' teaching and teaching he found in his studies all around the world and then wrote these dialogues where he put his own thoughts, Augustine says this, um, where Plato put his own thoughts and the divinest philosophy that he could find in his many travels and puts them into the mouth of Socrates. And the reason Plato excelled Socrates was because he, he went through and passed the ethical into divine things itself. Plato said, yes, yes, we need to be purified, 
in spirit before we approach the divine. But Augustine says Plato was greater than his master because Plato said, not only do we need to be ethical, but now having become ethical, we can basically be dissolved in God and find our happiness in God. Speaking of finding our happiness. So in chapter eight of book eight, Augustine says, quote, there remains the moral section of philosophy, ethics in Greek, which discusses the question of the summum bonum, which in Latin means the highest good, to which we refer all our actions, which we seek for its own sake, not for any ulterior end, and the attainment of which leaves us nothing more to seek for our happiness. For this reason it is called the end. Everything else we desire for the sake of this. This we desire for itself alone. So, morality in ancient thought is a bit different from what we might think today. Today we have the idea that we do the right thing because the right thing is inherently right. And that is morality. There's this idea that there's something just that you must do simply because it's on the right side of history is a common way that it's put. But in ancient thought, uh, morality is seeking happiness and fulfillment, I think, is a deep part of that happiness, especially in Augustine. Augustine says we act in a certain way because this these actions are what lead us to the ultimate good, the highest good. So what is the highest good? Well, some philosophers and schools of philosophy say that it's whatever makes me feel good. It's all about personal pleasure. And Augustine says, no, no, that won't do because you're finding the highest good within yourself. And surely there's something higher than ourself, our own pleasures and desires. So Augustine really likes the Platonists because they identify the highest good to be God. That Plato said that God is the highest good. And Augustine says that Plato got really, really close to Christianity here because Christians say that God is the highest good. And we act in a certain way that conforms to the desire of God, to the will and commands of God. So morality is ultimately obedience to God. Early on in Confessions, Augustine says, our souls are restless until they find rest in thee. And this is what it's at its core all about for Augustine, finding rest, finding happiness and fulfillment, if we can use that word, in God alone. And the actions, the way that we live our life will get us to that place of happiness. So one question that Augustine poses that's really fun is how did Plato get so close to Christianity? How did he get so close to knowing that there is only one God and this God is the highest good to which we are trying to conform? Well, he says there's a theory that when Plato made his trip down to Egypt, he ran into none other than the prophet Jeremiah from your Hebrew Bible. But Augustine says, I did the math on that. I've looked at the chronology and the timeline, and that's just not possible. Jeremiah was dead a good 60 years before Plato made his trip to Egypt, so that couldn't be it. And he says, also, it's unlikely that he was able to read the scriptures, 
because they weren't translated into Greek yet. Uh, that wouldn't happen until Ptolemy came around and had the Septuagint translated. It could be that he met some believers and they told him about the one true God. There seems to be some evidence that Plato knows about at least the Genesis story. Genesis begins with the words, In the beginning God made heaven and earth, but the earth was invisible and unformed, and there was darkness over the abyss, and the Spirit of God soared above the water. Now in the Timaeus, the book in which Plato writes about the creation of the world, Plato says that God in that work first brought together earth and fire. And it's obvious, Augustine says, that fire takes the place of the sky, so that this statement has a certain resemblance to the one just quoted. And Plato goes on to talk about water and air being a part of this whole creation story, and so that must be about how the Spirit of God hovered above the waters in Genesis. So it seems pretty clear that Plato knew the Bible, at least he had heard these stories. But the one most of all that Augustine thinks proves Plato has heard something here is the fact that when God told Moses God's own name, it was, I am the one who is. And Plato calls the divine uh, the one who is, the one who exists. That, for Augustine, is proof that Plato had received some word about the one true God. One of the footnotes in the edition that we're reading uh, points out that Clement of Alexandria quoted another writer who said, quote, What, after all, is Plato but Moses in Attic Greek? And I thought that was hilarious. But one place that Plato did not get so close to Christianity that Augustine points out is that Plato and his master Socrates were deficient in their thinking about demons and the nature of divine forces and whatnot. And you might have heard, you might not, that one of the stories that uh, circulated about Socrates is that Socrates had a special divine patron who would help him out on adventures and stuff. It would say, don't open that door. Don't pursue that line of thought. Don't go to Athens today. So one of the, this is a traditional classical story about Socrates, is that he had this divine patron who would guide him in life and help him out. And he was specially favored by the gods um, in order to be given this, you know, personal god helper guy. And the word for uh, that god helper guy that ancient Greek writers used was daimones, demon is what that word is transliterated to in English. And so Plato had this literally demon helper who would help him out on things. But you're going to have to put out of your mind the negative connotation for demon for just a minute. Augustine points out that the word for demon now, by which he means in his time, late 300s, early 400s, demon now means it's a purely negative thing. It's like what we think of as demons today in the 21st century. In Plato's day, a demon was um, just a type of divine being. And the way this is configured in ancient thought is that there's the super gods up who live up in the ether, which is, you know, above the air. Maybe you think of that like outer space. The super gods 
are in outer space. And below the super gods, there's these group of like lesser gods, which are called daimones, demons. And these lesser gods interact with humans and interact with the super gods. And the only way that the humans and the super gods can actually talk to each other or um, can communicate or interact with each other in any way is if the demons do the intermediary work. At one point, Augustine talks about this ancient author who wrote a book called The God of Socrates, talking about Socrates' special divine patron. And he quotes this guy as saying that the super gods up in the ether would not know what was happening on earth if it were not for the demons who go and give that god knowledge about the earth and who transmit prayers. Like, when you pray, the demons listen in, and they're like, okay, he asked for a new bike for Christmas. And so the demons go up to, I don't know, Zeus or whatever, the super gods, and say, hey, uh, uh, Jake down on earth wants a new bike for Christmas. And then Zeus makes the decision and says, all right, go make it happen, little demon guy. And the demon goes back to earth and makes it happen. Uh, that's kind of how demons are thought of in this ancient Greek context. And Augustine, as you might expect, says that's actually mistaken. Um, he has all these reasons for that, um, most, mostly a return back to his attack on theater and how the demons um, are actually immoral because they are physically located between humans and divine beings, but they're also kind of like a crossbreed, not like an actual breeding, but like the demons are eternal and non-material kind of like the gods, but they also have passions like the humans, like uh, they have desires, they have, they will things, and they often will immoral things. Um, and so Augustine attacks this and says, well, just because they're higher, doesn't, that doesn't make them better. They're apparently worse than humans because they do all this horrible stuff that I've already explained to you in the past seven books. Um, and they, you know, get men to castrate themselves and have giant penis festivals. That's real. Um, Augustine was pretty fixated on those penis festivals. Yeah, they're they're hilarious. Apparently in one of these rituals, a woman would put a crown on a man's penis. Like not a man. It was like a statue of a penis. Yeah, so the, these demons are morally below humans in a lot of ways. You know, like the Daedric princes. And so this is just one of Augustine's many attacks on polytheism. But he attacks polytheism in its most uh, prestigious and austere form in Plato. So if these demons are, in fact, inferior to humans, then Augustine has... A philosopher for that, which Augustine loves to pull philosophers from pagan culture and use them against pagan culture. And in this case, he has a guy named Hermes, and I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name, but just know that his name is Hermes and he's an Egyptian pagan philosopher. Hermes claims that there are these kinds of gods that are, in fact, made by humans. The idols that humans worship are statues infused with human souls, uh, and these are dead people's souls. So Hermes thinks that there are superior gods, and then there are the gods that 
humans make. And Augustine says, see, these are the demons. These are the, the beings that are below humans. And even Hermes admits that there are gods that are below humans. And if you know your Bible at all, then you might smell what Augustine is doing from a mile away. These idols are human-made. So obviously they're not real, they're not worthy of worship, and Augustine says, in fact, that's what all of these pagan gods are. They are man-made false gods, and they're not infused with human souls of your dead ancestors, and you're not possessed by these gods. In fact, you are possessed and you are worshiping actual demons, the evil counterpart to the angels. And uh, they are misleading you. They are what's destroying your culture and destroying Rome and making the world worse. But there's another reason that Augustine brings up this guy Hermes. And it's this whole concept of worshipping the dead. Augustine uses Hermes for another point to say, You all point at us and say, Oh, look, those Christians worship dead people. That's not true. We honor them. We revere them. We set up places to remember the martyrs, and we take their bodies there and enshrine them, not to pray to them, not to worship them. Instead, we worship God whenever we go to these places. In fact, if anyone has ever been to any of these ceremonies, you'll see that we don't have priests for these individual saints that have died. Those priests are priests of God. And whenever they go to these shrines, they pray to God, they make these sacrifices of incense and prayers to God. And you'll never find anyone among Christians worshipping dead people. That's what you folks do, not us. So that concludes books 7 and 8 of Augustine's City of God. Just a quick recap. Uh, he begins by attacking Varro's idea that there are all of these gods and there are some that are selected and better than all the others, but that's arbitrary. And Varro tries to say that in reality there's only one super god and that all these little gods are parts of that one super god. And Augustine says, nah, that's illogical and incoherent. And then in Book 8, Augustine celebrates a lot of the philosophy of Plato and says they get really close to Christianity, but... Ultimately, because they believe in demons, they're not so close. So next time on uh, Podcast Patristica special series on City of God, we'll keep asking the question, can pagan gods give you eternal life? Which is the only thing that Augustine's really interested in. As always, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can go to patristicapress.com books and check out the books that we have published there. There are some from... Gerhard and myself and some other great authors so check it out you can also find us on facebook and twitter rate and review us on itunes it helps a lot more than you might think yeah we rely on uh, people sharing both our books and our podcasts because we don't want to spend money promoting the podcast when we can rely on the friendship of people like you you are our best friends